Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Random. Berto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being part of the show. We are going to have a great show for you today. As usual, we always have a great show for you, right? That's what you tell me. And you know why we have great shows for you? Because it's your show. You know who designed the show? You do. You know what I try to do? Try to bring things that are prescient, things that are important. Ha, ha, ha. There we go. Welcome aboard. RGMCP says, hi, ABQ. Eric Hayes, welcome aboard. Michael Rotnen, welcome aboard. Uh, let's see. Uh, Egberto, MCP. Egberto, please read Bridges' comment first. Okay, I'll read Bridges' comment first. Uh, Melanie Keelan, how are you doing today? Let's see who else we got here that I've missed. Who have I missed? Who have I missed? Bridge MCP says, made it to the posse. And you don't know how happy I am to see you. And you know what? Brother Rudnan, who usually loads us up, he says, we must defer, given what we constantly do here. We must defer to the queen. We must defer to Bridge. So here we go with Bridge's message. I saw Bridge's message earlier. Let's see if I can find it. Here we go. Bridge says, to be clear, no president controls the prices. So given that every politician wants to take credit for keeping gas prices in check or better, lowering them, and everyone running against an incumbent wants to blame on the person in charge, it makes sense that politicians would do everything in their power to keep gas prices low, especially presidents. Actually, it's not that they're bad at it. It's that they have very little control over it. Yes, policies and legislation can certainly play a role. But gas prices are largely dictated by oil prices and oil prices are dependent upon supply and demand. Presidential control is not as simple as what those posts suggest on social media. Russian oil accounts for 3% of our oil. Oil companies are greedy bastards. And you know what? I'm gonna, I, I agree with most of what my sister Breach has to say, except for one sentence in there, and we're going to talk about it. Here's the, the sentence that I disagree with. Yes, policies and legislation can certainly play a role, but gas prices are largely dictated by oil prices, and oil prices are dependent on supply and demand. And the only piece that I disagree with with my dear, beautiful sister is oil prices are dependent on supply and demand. Because if that's the case, the price of oil today makes absolutely no sense. We'll talk about that in my soliloquy because I have a hell of a lot that I want to talk about. Folks, if you're on YouTube, don't forget to go ahead and give, give us that thumbs up. We want that thumbs up. That, or on, face, on YouTube, give us that thumbs up. On Facebook, give us that like. Very important for us to start moving this stuff forward. All right, let's see what else we got here. So we, we're going to talk about that bridge MCP, and I'd like people to have continual input. Uh, whoa, yeah, I disagree with that we line as well. We, we are always in sync. Lee Grant says, hey, all. Hey, Lee, how you doing? Roberto Lewis says, saludos, politics done right. Saludos, hermano mío de Panama. Peggy Lopez is here with us. Uh, John Cotter. Hi, Egberto. Watching from... What are you doing in Denver, John? Are you skiing or you did you fly your plane to Denver? Wow. You know, hey, this guy's a hell of a pilot, hell of a supporter. Thank you for being here, brother Cutter. Bruce Pollard says, demand did not double and supply did not go in half. Oh, my God. You are a genius, Bruce. You are a genius. But we're going to talk about all of that. I'm not going to talk about everything that people write down right now. I just want to salute everybody. And then we're going to talk about issues. But before we talk about the issues, I have a very, you know, you know, I like to engage 
the left and the right. I love all sides. And I know we suffer from differences, etc., in ideology and all that kind of stuff. But all and ultimately, we generally all want the same thing. You know, no matter how loud mouth or crazy you do, when you have your kid in your hands, when you're talking about your daughter, when you're talking about your, about your son, your kid, your wife, your friend, your girlfriend, whatever, all of us have that same commonality, right? But it's in all of the different things that we got to talk about. Fran Urbina, good afternoon. Just got on May. I ask a question, please. You can always ask a question, Fran Urbina. If you ask it now, I can answer it quickly before I do the interview that I'm going to be playing. So I'm going to go back up top. George Ruddock says, oil prices never make no sense, but Trump had the price down to zero. Remember, you think that oil companies like that? He didn't put it to zero. It was because nobody was buying it and they had an oversupply of oil and the oil companies had nowhere to store it. So they had to beg people to store the oil. And to, the people say, okay, I'll store the oil for you, but you have to pay me to store the oil. That's what it's about. So Urbana, I thought, let me go to Rudnin. Rudnin says, children under the rubble after Russian airstrikes and maternity hospital says, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, I mean, Volodymyr Zelensky, authorities say that at least 17 wounded, including women in labor, are shelling again house evacuations. Russian bombs have completely destroyed a children's and maternity hospital in Mariupol. Ukrainian authorities have said as shelling again halted mass evacuations from several cities, including the devastated southern port where conditions are described as apocalyptic. As sad as Ukraine's ministers, Dmitry Kuleva, accused Russia of holding 400,000 people hostage in Mariupol. Much of those population has been without power, heat, water, or phone. That is just animal. Direct strike of Russian troops at the maternity hospitals. You know, um, it is sad. Okay, second, Pentagon rejects Poland's offer to send fire fighter, fighter jets to the U.S. to send the Ukraine, saying it raises serious concerns for the NATO alliance. Russian President Vladimir Putin warned that they would consider countries imposing a no-fly zone as participants in a military conflict. While our air forces have 1,245 F-16s, we could easily send 30 of them to Poland without losing any capability. The problem is Poland's, Poland, the, the pilots in Poland don't know how to fly F-16s. They can fly, fly make 29s not F-16. And that's the real problem why Poland was talking about giving them the F-16, F, F, the, the MiG-29 from Russia. But <laughs> Poland is scared that if those guys fly the MiG-29s from Poland, Russia will be waiting. They be, here's what I think is happening. They believe Russia has the satellites pinned on, <coughs> on the border. And as soon as those planes, they're going to track every single one of those MiG planes. And as soon as those planes lift off, they're going to wait as soon as it gets into Ukraine and not send other uh, and send all kind of missiles to blow them apart. That message, that notion should have never been advertised that we would send them MiGs. So as it turns out now, those MiGs cannot be sent, in my opinion, for any time soon. The best they could do is pull the MiGs apart, rebuild them in some other in other country where, you know, they transported them in trucks or something that can be undetectable. And then uh, truck them into, uh, I, I think what they have to do is truck these parts in, truck the planes and parts into uh, Ukraine, rebuild it, and then fly it. Because right now as it is, I think, I agree with the assessment that it would be high risk. Uh, El Senor uh, Vinmar, Alexander Vinmar said that um, 
you know, the former colonel said, well, if you're giving slinger missiles and, uh, and, and these other types of missiles, it's a, it's, it's the same as having a plane. And he's right about that. Uh, he's right about that. Vinman is. The problem is you can shoot these damn things down. But that, that's for another, another story. Michael Rodman also says, loss of Russian oil leaves a, a void not easily filled. Strain in market global production will take time to ramp up. So the U.S. and other buyers will chase limited supplies, creating upheaval on scene. Decades expect the sea dollar increases at the pump and cost of goods. So that is the biggest lie there is. And the New York Times is promoting a lie. That is to, uh, that they are promoting the oil company's message to justify pilfering the Americans. Okay. We do not have a shortage of oil. 12 to 15% of petroleum and whatever percentage of gas is recoverable by many other means. But we'll talk about that after the interview. It drives me crazy that it, 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 when I talk about a plutocracy, folks, I talk about the New York Times. All of these guys are singing from the same hymnal. There isn't a shortage of oil. This stuff is created so that we would be willing to justify what they want to bill us. I am so tired of us falling for the same game over and over and over again. You know, they want to recover all that oil that they had to sell at zero or at negative prices. This is an opportune time for them to recover. Anyway, Michael, one more. Climate Coalition urges big banks to pull plug on U.S. gas exports. Today, 120 organizations sent letters to six biggest American banks, urging them to stop lending and support for new and expanding gas export facilities, <clears throat> citing environmental justice and climate concerns, as well as uh, rising home heating costs for American communities being driven by the rise in exports. More than 20%, 20 new and expanded export facilities are currently proposed to liquefy and ship methane gas from the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana to foreign markets. If built, these projects could lock in fossil fuel production for decades to come and exacerbate arm, uh, uh, Gulf Coast communities already facing disproportionate rates of industrial pollution from the fossil fuel industry and impacts of extreme weather driven by climate. This is what I'd call a cultural insanity. We're destroying the environment and our communities so that fossil fuel corporations can maximize profits by exporting more fossil fuels at a time when our nation is struggling. Look, I want to be practical here. We have to hit a, a what we call a solid, uh, a, um, what's, what's that word? Steady state condition. You, know, you have steady state error, etc. We are in, mark, mark today, and then mark what we can do without when it comes to fossil fuels. And that's where we start. And, and like Farid Sakadia said, there's a possibility that we may have to increase production in the United States for a while. But that should come with commitments to green energy and the commitment to move it forward. The oil company will always fight against green energy until they have maximized their use of cheap petroleum. And after maximizing, I'll cover this also in my soliloquy. I'm not going to go there yet. All right, let's continue. Bridge MCP, I read that already. Eric Hayes says, 
ESG and climate being responsible, it's what the energy companies in the West are doing. Lowered flaring over 20%, but not the OPEC counterpart. Still flare away. So how do we get everyone to agree because one area is doing it? Look, if I am dumping uh, 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 50% of the crap in the air and I stop, then we stop dumping 50% of the crap in the air. Uh, you're the one who always, Eric always says, stop going back to the past. Look, I am not. We have to try to convince and make it worth the while of these people to stop polluting the air. Bruce Pollard says, I'm here. Yvette Avery Herod, welcome, my dear sister. I think we have a talk tomorrow. Is it tomorrow at noon, I believe? I'll check it out and send you the, 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 the uh, Zoom. Uh, saludos Political Don Wright is from El Señor Robert Luis Roberto de Panama. Eric Hayes says, here is a local one. Hidalgo keeping her appointed election head till July 1st, making 190K per year and still two election cycles to go. Why is this? Harris County is the only one in Texas out of over 200 counted to miss the deadline because of 10,000 votes just show up. No, they didn't just show up. It was a mistake, the 10,000 votes, and our checks and balance, guess what it did? It showed there wasn't cheating. It shows it was a clerical error. This has never happened right. It has happened all the time, many times before. But again, they get caught and corrected. I wish one of you guys who complain would go try to run one of these elections. I think they should be more on point, though. That's it. All right, Peggy Lopez says, Hi, all. March 9, 1959, the first Barbie doll goes on display at the American Toy Fair in New York City. Happy birthday, Barbie. Toy fan here drove 10 years for Toys R Us Distribution Center. Wow. Lee Grant says, hi, all. John Carter again in Denver. John, you still haven't told me what you're doing in Denver. Let's see what you got. All right, let's see what we've got. ABQ says, friend, Republicans do have solutions. Uplift corporations, crush the poor. Let's see. Uh, is, let me, I, I, seem, I seem to have skipped a few things here, so let's get here. Uh, Michael, hey, Mike, you're sharing conspiracy mail links. <laughs> Mike Cisak, my brother Mike Cisak always does that. John says, in June 2008, the price of a barrel of oil was $40 higher than today, yet the pump price is higher in many places. Why? Corporate greed. You got that right. It's always the case. It's always the case. Peggy Lopez says, by the way, Barbie is still a sexist, misogynistic toy for girls. All right. Let's see what else we got here. Um, president and their administrators have control over large... Uh, okay, I'm not going to go that one. CSAC. Okay, Bridge says, Bill Clinton left office with gas prices at 39 cents higher. 106. Uh, one for the, you guys, you're going to have to read that one from Bridge because I, I, I see that I'm going to run out of time. So I'm going to, it's a good piece that Bridge just wrote there. Bridge, you have to get ahead of Michael Rutten in it every so often so that I don't, or make sure that I see it. At least Michael was nice enough to say, hey, Bridge has a good thing underneath there as well. All right, let's see if I have any quick questions. All right. Como, LOL, Carl Cox is Egberto, the PDR Posse, please see on YouTube, I'm on poor and copy company videos concerning interviews with retired Lieutenant Alexander Vinman and with Michael McKibben. Great interviews. Thank you for the heads up. Anyway, folks, I got to go ahead and give our, um, our interview for today. And then we'll finish up with the soliloquy. I sure hope I have the time because I really want to talk about gas prices. So let's go ahead and let's get busy with that. Okay. Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being a part of our show. Again, we have a great guest to 
to bring you today. You know what we talk about a whole lot, speaking to all sides, being able to communicate very well on all sides. Well, this is the man. Isaac Saul is the founder and editor of Tangle, an independent, ad-free, nonpartisan newsletter that has been recognized by the New York Times, Forbes, and Substack as one of the most successful political newsletters. Tangle has over 30,000 daily readers and presents a left-right breakdown of the biggest political news stories of the day. You got to check it out with the goal of representing the best arguments from both sides of the aisle. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Isaac, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, look, first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you get started, etc.? Sure. Yes. Uh, I'm a political journalist. And, uh, you know, I came to this work by publishing my writing, my opinions, my investigative journalism, my straight news reports in a wide variance of news outlets. And over time, realizing that people essentially trusted or listened to what I was writing based solely on the outlet that it was being published in. So, you know, I could write the same piece in Fox News and Huffington Post. And if it was in Fox News, no liberal would read it or care about it or trust it. And if it was in the Huffington Post, no conservative would read about it or care about it or trust it. And I decided that I wanted to try and bridge the gap a little bit. And, you know, I think there's a lot of problems with the current media ecosystem And one of them is that we're not honest about our biases as journalists. Uh, Another one of them is that, you know, depending on what news outlet you read, you're almost certainly going to get basically just one side of the story. And so I came up with this concept to just put what the right is saying, put what the left is saying right next to each other, let you read both of those things, come to your own conclusions, add a little bit of my own commentary, some basic facts about the story too, and then kind of take it from there. I love, I, I, I simply love that because I hate to say that's what I do. You know, I mean, we, 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 <laughs> I, I, I'm a, I'm a lefty, but the truth of the matter is a lot of my audience are people on the right because of the honesty with which I accept what I believe in and I accept what they, I accept that they believe what they believe. And I think that's important. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I kind of have a hunch where you your persuasion is. I'm not quite sure, especially after ri- writing that particular Huffington Post article about Hillary Clinton. I <laughs> thought it was, you know, I was going to hit that one. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I, I but I mean, it was honest. And, and that is what I think people people like. I think people probably enjoy that. Uh, it's it's not about what you say. It's about whether what you're saying is fact based or whether you're honest with the belief that you have your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, what I like to say is that, uh, you know, I'm politically incongruent. I don't fit into one box. You know, I mean, the story you're referencing is a piece I wrote, uh, I guess, seven, six or seven years ago now in 2016, leading up to the election, where I basically, you know, apologized for some really critical writing I had written about Hillary Clinton. I'd, I'd sort of excoriated her and then gone back and said, you know what, maybe there's more merit to her candidacy than I had thought. But, you know, over time, my politics have evolved on a lot of issues, especially as I've grown up and seen more of the world. And uh, I think what, what I what I typically say to people is, you know, it just depends on the issue. Sometimes people subscribe to Tangle on a Monday and they reply to the newsletter that day and they say, you said you were nonpartisan, but 
you know, I can tell you're a liberal from your take in today's newsletter. And then the people who sign up on Tuesday will say, you say you're nonpartisan, but I can tell you're a secret conservative based on your take in today's newsletter. And it's because, you know, it just depends on the issue. And I think a lot of Americans are like that. I think a lot of people don't fit neatly into one political box. And I'm trying to say, you know, that's okay. It's all right to, it's all right to dunk on your team every now and then it's all right to change your point of view on something. If you see a good argument for it and it's okay to say, you know, I'm not a Democrat or a Republican. And I think that that's becoming more and more popular today. I mean, independents are now the largest self-identified political group in America. And it's for good reason, because, uh, you know, the, the two major parties are both deeply flawed right now. Yeah, they're absolutely and deeply flawed. Now, interestingly, you said something about um, the, the, you know not being a partisan. I, I don't I don't consider myself a partisan. I consider myself, however, believing in a particular ideology. And I think what's interesting is most of the people in this country believe that believe in my ideology, and I would I would I would proffer your ideology as well, which is whatever is good for the vast majority of people, whatever, whatever the policies are. And, you know, most of the times those policies appear in one section, but every so often it appears somewhere else as well. And you have to be brave enough to, to point that out. And I think in your writings, that is your later writings, that is something that you prove your thoughts on that. Look, I mean, I think, uh, you know, progressives are called progressives for a reason and conservatives are called conservatives for a reason. I mean, one side is trying to change the country and reform it in a lot of ways. And the other side is trying to prevent change and hold on to certain things from the past. And I think there are great things about our country and our country's founding and and the status quo. And there are really bad things about it too. And, And that to me is sort of what both sides kind of bring to the table and offer in a really helpful and valuable way. Um, you know, I think one of my positions right now that is sort of evolving or I'm reflecting on a bit more is that I have for a long time been a huge critic of our military defense budget and how big it is and how bloated it is and how much money we spend on guns and tanks and airplanes and bases in other countries when our schools are falling apart and all these things. And then, you know, I watched Ukraine get invaded by an authoritarian leader this this month. And I have to admit, it it occurred to me, I'm really, really glad that I know this would never happen in the United States because we're the biggest and the baddest and nobody's going to come for us. And it was the first time in my life I've ever really second guessed that political view of mine. And I'm trying to reflect on it with an open mind right now. And I think, you know, more Americans should be open to that and open to changing their opinions and thinking about it because, you know, I, I think the vast majority of people are well-intentioned. And while most politicians are very interested in preserving their power, there are a number of really decent, good politicians on both sides of the aisle who are trying to do what they think is is good for the country. Now, you opened a door that I, I, I would like for you to maybe write some, some about, and I'd, be, I'd love to get that newsletter myself and, and post it. But you made an interesting point that uh, Ukraine really sort of make you, made you rethink your 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 process your thought process on big military and you know i i you know there's for me that's neither here and there other than uh sh- should we look at it from the point of view like okay i'm glad that there's still a big military as opposed to why can't we do both or even that uh maybe some is overkill your thoughts 
Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I, I guess, first of all, it's something I'm still processing a little bit. And so I'll, I'll caveat everything I'm about to say with that, but, you know, I think it's just that I'm, I'm realizing that our safety and our security as a country is something that I often take for granted. And that a lot of countries across the planet don't live with that safety and don't live with that security. And the reason that we have that safety and that security is because we have the biggest and the most well-funded military in the world. And most countries recognize that it would be a suicide mission to, to invade us or to, you know, really mess with us even on the world stage. Now, of course, that doesn't change my view that a lot of the the military explorations that we've taken from Iraq to Afghanistan to funding Saudi arms, all these things, I still view very negatively. I mean, I don't think we should be spending our military money on projects in other nations, quote unquote, you know, spreading democracy with bombs. But I do, I think for the first time, really recognize why so many people, why so many conservatives in particular support such a huge military budget, which is that they recognize that there are a lot of threats out there in the world and it's better to be safe than sorry. And, um, you know, just watching the events of the last few weeks have, have made me reflect on that a little bit. You know, um, today I got a message from uh, from a good friend that we participate in several um, uh, organizations, nonpartisan org- organizations, that is. And one of the questions that she asked, and um, this is this isn't any kind of a, 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 a gotcha or anything, but I, I would love to hear your opinion on that, because I gave an opinion. I'm I'm pulling it up as we speak, if it'll decide to come up someday, somehow, sometime. But I'll caveat the question and say it this way. She said, is journalism, uh, it says, should journalistic objectivity be standard reporting? Your thoughts on should, I'm going to give you my answer after, but I'm curious to see how you would interpret that question. Yeah, it's a a huge question our industry is facing right now. And my answer is that no journalist is truly objective. There are fair journalists and there are hacks. And I think it's really important to separate the two. I think it's important to separate the reporters out there who clearly have a political agenda, who are willing to obscure the facts or spread misinformation in order to tell the story they want to tell. But I know a lot of liberal and a lot of conservative journalists, people who openly wear their politics on their sleeves, who are also really great, fair reporters that will go out and cover a story and do it fairly. And I think there's a lot of honor in the work that journalists do when it's done right. And the best reporters feel a great deal of responsibility to try and tell a story that's true and honest and holistic. And so, you know, it's not always easy to decipher, but uh, one of the things I like to remind people is, look, even the most liberal journalists in the world are often the ones who are most critical of their team, of the Democratic Party. I mean, they're the ones who write the hardest hitting stories about the president who is a Democrat because they expect the highest of that president. Um, the, The famous example, in my opinion, is, you know, the New York Times, widely seen as a left wing newspaper now, is the paper that broke the story on Hillary Clinton's emails. They're the paper that has covered Obama's drone wars in the Middle East. You know, two of the biggest stains on two of the biggest Democrats in the country came from the New York Times, which is supposed to be a paper that is, you know, a left wing paper. And um, you just never know how it's going to play out. You know, I, 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 first of all, I agree with absolutely 
everything that you said. I want to read two short paragraphs that I told her, and I want you to comment on that if, and, and, and expand on it, actually. I said, should journalistic objectivity, uh, standard reporting, yes, but journalistic objectivity has never existed. To big, begin with, journalists and or their producers choose the stories they cover, and the stories they cover, even if they are simply reporting occurrences without opinion, illustrate subjectivity. As an example, figure out all the violent crime in any given city, then watch the local news. Do the protagonists of said violent crime on the six o'clock news reflect either the totality or proportionality of those in reality? I don't think it does. Your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, well, story selection bias is one of the biggest and most important kinds of bias that exists in the news. Obviously, you know, the easiest way to illustrate this is go to HuffingtonPost.com on one morning and then go to FoxNews.com on the same day. And the front pages of those two websites will be radically different, despite the fact they're trying to cover the exact same thing, you know, U.S. national politics and, and global political world. Um, they choose stories based on how they want their audience to feel on that day or what they want their audience to click on. So obviously, you know, a Fox news knows that if they cover a story about 50 migrants trying to cross the Southern border, that's going to get a lot more clicks than the Huffington post would get if they covered that exact same story, um, you know, related to the crime numbers, it's an interesting point. I think, uh, you know, it's, it's another reminder that, even something that's supposed to be as straightforward as data can be really obscured. I mean, the the violent crime rise across the United States right now, I think, is a really complex thing. And I see a lot of people trying to assign it to, oh, the police are pulling back because of the defund the police movement. And it's like, yeah, I mean, maybe there's something there. Maybe that's something to do with it. But, you know, we also just went through a global pandemic where millions of people lost their jobs and anxiety was really high and people are using drugs more. And, you know, these are all things that contribute to crime rates. And so, um, you know, it's it's very rarely the black and white answer. I, I like to tell people, you know, look for the gray and you'll find some clarity, actually, believe it or not. And, you know, piggy, piggybacking on that, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? I mean, it's, it's complex. It's a bit more complex, but most of our reporters, including the, the, the regular mainstream media, and that's why a newsletter like yours is so important because you go, go through and the machinations of both sides, or I shouldn't say both sides, it's really the machinations of all sides to actually try to discern where it's not commonality, but where the actual math exists. I always tell people BS in, BS out. If the FBI data looks like crap when it goes in because of who actually gets the numbers in there, the numbers that get out is going to be crap as well. Now, we take a look at something like Ukraine right now. Ukraine, it has the real sympathetic ear of the United States right now. And we really feel for those people who look like most Americans right now. And we cannot believe that those things are happening in Ukraine. And uh, I mean, worse, worse atrocities continue today to occur throughout the world that we don't see. Remember talking earlier about selectivity of stories, et cetera, what actually get covered. And um, we, 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 don't, we don't see that. So we take a look and say a lot of people immediately blame Americans and say, look at how Americans are. This, this white country in, in Europe gets nailed for who they care. When in, if we take a look at the totality, our media does not humanize elsewhere like they humanized Ukraine. You can't blame the average American populace 
or the impressions that they get from the fourth estate. And that's why I talk about the importance of what you do, the importance of what I do, because again, it's not easy to just go blame Americans for that's how they are, how Americans are. No, Americans are reflecting what the fourth estate presents to them. Your your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I think it's a really great point. I mean, I actually just wrote a bit of a Twitter thread about this recently, which was, you know, the response that I saw, I think, was similar to the response you saw when there was this outpouring of love and support for Ukraine. There was a lot of people who were sort of shaming people who felt for Ukraine, saying, oh, where were you when, you know, bombs were being dropped on Yemen or in Iraq or Syria? And my message was, you know, this is an opening here. We have an opportunity where we're getting a clear view that when people are exposed to these kinds of horrors, it's really moving them. And instead of seeing that as an opportunity to shame somebody for feeling horrible about what's happening in Ukraine, use it as an opportunity, as an opening to realize that the more people who see these kinds of things happening across the world, the more humanity and empathy there will be for yes. them. And the greater our chances are of actually stopping war and stopping these things from happening in the future. And so don't spend your time shaming people. Spend your time saying, yes, you're right. This is terrible. We should always reject it when you know a country is dropping bombs on millions of innocent people and then hold every Everybody to that standard across the board in Yemen and Syria and Iraq. And that's how you sort of facilitate the change rather than, you know, making people feel horrible for, for having a feeling they should have, which is you should be horrified by what's happening in Ukraine. It's a terrible, horrible thing. Exactly right. You know, um, uh, I tell you what, doing what I do, I imagine doing what you do as well. Uh, you get to meet people of all stripes. And what I've really found out when I, you know, I tell people all the time, most people are good, Right. And I tell people that all the time and everybody, you know, my, my audience is mixed. I mean, I'm very, very, I have liberals, progressives, uh, black, white, everything, big audience, right? that, that, that type of audience. And what I try to tell them as we talk together is that if we stop looking at each other as somehow what forces, and believe me, there are forces that need us to look at each other differently to keep the system alive you need those forces i said if we start i always talk about loving your brother on my show my program you know if, if we just start thinking that kind of a way you know what i mean you'd start to see a whole lot of things change because my when when my right wingers come on and they they name call me on my show i look at them and say hey, cool brother still love you man and understand that a lot of these things are externalities a lot of these things come from abroad and start looking at people's humanity proper, a lot of these problems are solved. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point. I mean, I uh, one of the things I really like to do when people ask me about, you know, how do you talk about politics with people who you disagree with? Um, I get a lot of emails from, you know, readers who have an aunt or an uncle, or they have kids who are really politically opposite of them or friends even. And they just say, you know, I don't even know how to broach the conversation. And I'm like, this is such a golden opportunity. Most of us spend, you know, so much of our time arguing with people online and all this stuff. You know, you have a neighbor who has a big Trump flag out front. You don't know what his deal is or you're scared of him or whatever. Go buy a six pack of beer and walk over there and knock on his door and tell me you want to chat. You know, and yes. that that is how yes. you actually bridge the gap and change things. And in my personal life, it's 
it's worked wonders. You know, I'll talk to anybody. I'll chat with anybody. I interview anybody. Um, because when you talk to people and you break down that stuff, you actually, you know, can ma- make some progress out there in the world a little bit. We're almost coming to the end. I, I, I had a, a, I used to go not all the time, but I actually got invited to a couple of, uh, tea. You remember the tea party days? Yeah. I was going to yeah. Hunky tonky bars, drinking the tea party, <laughs> uh, you know, ha- hanging out with these guys and talking, you know, uh, not, not, not a, not, not a problem. Right. So, I mean, um, that beer thing works like a champ. I had a woman called me up, one of my, um, one of my listeners. And she said, Egberto, she lived in my part of town. And I said, Egberto, can we go out to coffee? I really need to talk to you about my family. I said, sure, let's go. So I went and had coffee with her. And what it was, it was Thanksgiving time. And she was going home with her family and her family is racist. Her family or big Trump supporters and all of that. And she said, I, I don't want to go. I don't think I should go. What you think or whatever. I told her, you need to go. And you know what? The first time they just said something, just say, I love you, man. We may disagree. Love you, man. You know? And she left there with a big smile on her face because I think one of the things is that she's so enlightened. She thought that it was almost doing something wrong by going to hang with her family who she knows was a racist bunch. And I'm like, no, it's your family. You know, just go out there and you keep trying, you know, just go out there. It does, it, it works. And in the long run, they will see what comes out of you and they'll change. Yeah. And, and to that point too, I should add, you know, there are a lot of conservatives out there who are scared to speak their mind because they feel like they're going to be hated by people on the left. And, and, you know, if you're a liberal and it sounds like maybe a lot of your audience is progressive, I mean, being able to hear somebody who is on the right espouse their political views and not immediately demonize them is a good way to earn their trust and make them mere you know, make them feel more comfortable and more vulnerable and more willing to talk out their side of things too. Because just like there are a lot of people like that who are scared to go home to their, you know, Trump family or their racist family or whatever, there are a lot of conservatives out there who are scared to speak openly about their views because they're worried about getting canceled or screamed at or labeled a racist Mm -hmm. or a bigot or whatever. And, uh, you know, we're just, we're really not talking to each other enough right now. It's a big problem. That is so true. Well, let me ask you, Isaac, last question is, um, and I asked this one to everybody on my show at the end, what would you have liked me to ask you that I didn't? Oh, man, that's a great question. Uh, I would have liked you to ask me um, something about my political views changing, I think. That's always a good question. Well, you know, have at it. (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I guess uh, to that point, you know, what I like to say when people ask about, you know, you, well, one of the questions I get from a lot of people is you write this newsletter, you always talk about changing your political views, you know, where have your views actually changed today? I guess I had a little bit of an example that I'm going through this thing with the the military funding, but um, one of the, one of the political views that I've had really change, not I guess my political view hasn't changed, but I've become a lot less radicalized about it is the issue of abortion, which I am a pretty still vehemently pro-choice. But in my experience writing this newsletter, I have interacted with a ton of readers who are anti-abortion, pro-life conservatives. And 
talking to them, emailing with them, writing with them, even having a phone call with a few, I've realized that kind of the caricature that I've been fed of most pro-life Americans is actually just that. It's sort of like a really extremist version of these kind of really hateful, oftentimes super religious, very, very, very conservative Americans. And what I've found is that a lot of these people are just like really decent people. They they don't want to control women's bodies. They just fundamentally want to, you know, keep life. And and I and it's a much more relatable position from talking to them about it. And I've sort of come to realize that um, you know, not every pro-choice or not every pro-life person out there is just like a raving religious zealot. A lot of them are actually not religious. A lot of them are Democrats. A lot of them are politically moderate. They just have this issue that they really care about, whether it's because of religion, whether it's a scientific thing that, you know, once they hear a heartbeat, they feel that means we should preserve the life. Um, and and I just really come to kind of respect a lot of their I guess, motivations for that political view, even though I still disagree with them. And I think there's a lot of other reasons to disagree with them aside from just the really religious conservative stuff. But um, I've learned to have really productive conversations about it, which I never thought I'd be able to do since I think it's one of the hardest topics in the country right now. Prescient, prescient. I tell you, um, if I had more time, I would like, I would have told you about my Medicare for all story and a, a conservative, <laughs> a, a conservative woman ultimately coming up with that solution herself. And when realizing that she came up with the same solution that I did, who at that point she didn't know I was progressive said, but you're so nice. And the reason I'm saying that is you use the word caricature. Her belief of what a liberal or progressive looked like was a caricature. And like you just said there, once you start to talk to people, it's no longer about being a caricature, like you said. It's about just the humanity in all of us. Isaac, uh, Paul, I looked at, I, when I saw your name, I said, two <laughs> names out of the New Testament. Yeah, Isaac. <laughs> or maybe, maybe maybe the other thing as well. Maybe, maybe the, uh, the, the, what is it called again? Um, well, you know what I'm talking about. The Torah. The Torah. That's what, that's, I was trying, that's I was right. trying to get it. I I'm said, a good Jew, baby. Hey, but you know, <laughs> It is funny. It is funny because that's the first that after I said that, I'm said, no, maybe I should say the Torah, right? Then, <laughs> hey, we we're we are people, man. We're people. Anyhow, Isaac Paul, it's been my pleasure to have you are a great interviewee, man. I, I, I love your politics or non-politics, whatever the hell it is. And uh, you know, continue doing what you do with your newsletter. I think we need a whole lot more people out there that are presenting our politics the way you present our politics. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. And if people want to check it out, go to readtangle.com and you can find the newsletter and, and soak it all in. All of it's going to be in the bottom of the blog, folks. Check it out. Thank you so kindly. Take Thank care, you, Isaac. Have a good one. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into as host of Politics Done Right, a progressive radio media show on Pacifica Networks, KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, that engages all ideologies. I found that our political angst isn't mostly ideological. There is a well-designed effort by many in power to control us. If we are at each other's throats, we are less likely to demand our economic and local wishes. In that light, I wrote three books. 
I wrote the first one titled, As I See It, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom, to describe the entire economy in a manner we can all understand. It highlights why it was designed to pill for most as it empowers a few, the chosen. The second book, titled, It's Worth It, How to Talk to Your Right-Wing Relatives, Friends, and Neighbors, take it to the next level. After understanding how the system pilfers, it is incumbent that we can speak to our peers to empower a change. The third book, How to Make America Utopia, Take Away the Economy from Those Who Rigged It, gives us a place to land. After learning about our economy that is dysfunctional for most and learning how to engage the other side, we point out what would make an economy that works for all. Each book stands on its own, but together they provide the full picture. Please consider getting one or more. You will undoubtedly learn, be entertained, and help us continue the mission with our blogs, articles, videos, and books. Absolutely so, folks. Please support us. Please support us. <clears throat> Look, you can actually get all of our... If you can, First of all, be, become a member of our PDR Posse. Just if you're on YouTube right now, click that join button. After you click that uh, thumbs up, click the join button and please become a part of our PDR Posse. If you do it right now, I'll see something up on the screen and I'll go ahead and put your name on the screen. But anyway, please go ahead and do it now if you can. Alternatively, you can support us at politicsandright.com slash patron. Politicsandright.com slash patron. Patron is a P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Politicsandright.com slash patron. I just put it in the feed as well. Our best form of support, politicsandright.com slash PayPal. Politicsandright.com slash PayPal. You can either give us a one-time uh, one-time support or you can do a support on a monthly basis. A lot of people have chosen the second option because they really value what we do. And let me tell you, we work hard. We work hard to bring you these stories. We work hard to get these people, uh, uh, many people who normally wouldn't have a platform. We want to make sure everybody, whether you are popular like Richard Wolf or, or any of the major politicians we interview, or you're somebody with a newsletter that has some prescient information, we want to all use our platforms, integrate our platforms to make sure that America is informed. So please consider going to politicsandright.com slash PayPal. We have a lot of nice new stuff at our store, politicsandright.com slash store, politicsandright.com slash store. It's time for Politics Done Right. Pause volvemos. That's the pause volvemos. So we're pausing and we'll return. That's what it is in Spanish. I love that. You know, I love when you use that phrase, especially when you actually say it. I'm, you know what I'm going to do, Lou? I'm going to make a tape of you saying pause volvemos and I'm going to put that onto the screen here. That's what I'm going to do. Next time I see you, we're going to do that, bro. All right, let's see. Uh, don't forget, go to our store, politicsandright.com slash store, politicsandright.com slash stores. Uh, you can get our books at politicsandright.com slash books. Please get the books. That helps defray our cost as well. All these different methods. What we try to do, right, is give you every different method possible for you to provide us whatever is easiest for you to provide support. And we have a catch-all where we have all the different ways that you can support us. Politicsandright.com says support. Choose any form, but please find a way to support us. The other side... They never have to run because they keep their people so damn scared that they, that they open their pocketbooks to, to the right wing. All we're saying is we want a few pennies so that we can do this stuff, do this stuff right, encourage the posse, encourage people to go out there and vote, inform people about just about everything. Okay, I don't have a lot of time left, but let's talk gasoline. We have been programmed into believing Oh, something happened to the, the, the supply pipeline and it justify us having, 
the, the, the amount of gasoline we have. You know, when I was uh, taking my daughter to rehab this morning, we're talking about gasoline and she was like, oh, why gasoline is so high? And we started talking about how it's a paper pricing, right? Now you have brokers who have nothing to do with production of gasoline or any, they have nothing to do with gasoline. They just sit down in a high class office. They make a bunch of money and they trade contracts, right? So what you do is you have a hysterical portion of the community give people that are that went to business school but that somehow doesn't have an engineering mind doesn't have a uh, don't have a practical mind to understand where things are. Let me give an example now. So what happens? Emma Bickers, welcome aboard my friend. Here's what happens. You go ahead and you own let's say United Airlines, and you start to get scared that your kerosene that you used to power the oil, the jet fuel that used to power the planes, are suddenly going to go through the roof and you won't be able to have tickets that people can afford. So what you do is you go buy a contract. And that contract says, oh, I am willing, I think there's going to be a scarcity of, of petroleum. There ain't going to be no scarcity. We don't have a scarcity. But they are of the figment of their imagination after these charlatanes, the business class that owns this company, give the impression that there's a, there's a possibility of a shortage. We're going to talk about why there ain't no shortage in a minute. But here's what these people then do. United Airlines would go ahead and say, okay, my God, I think a gas, the, the, the barrel of petroleum is going to go to $150 a barrel. I'm going to make a deal. I'm going to buy a contract right? I am going to dry, get a contract that locks in $100 a barrel for oil, no matter what happens. Oh, there it goes, John Carter. You know what? I forgot John Carter was on. <laughs> but that's what they do. And, 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 and he, just hit the, the, he just named it correctly, fuel hedging. But they do not need to fuel hedge because there isn't a supply problem even if all of Russia is offline. We are flooded in supplies of oil, but in the transmission of oil, in putting out the oil, we have a plutocratic class that have decided to hold us hostage. Between now and when Russia comes online, there will be no more pipeline bill that expand. None of these hardware things for moving oil, tankers, all of that is going to, within the time period of this war, let's say it lasts a year, there's not going to be a whole lot of new stuff built. But if somehow that war stops, the price of oil will crater because of what people believe. What am I trying to say here? I saw in the, I don't have the whole thread. People talk about speculation. Yeah, but it's not, it's not, it's not honest speculation that we have in this market, in the oil market and in most of our capitalist markets. It's not honest speculation. It's corrosive, fraudulent speculation that fools people into buying at a high price, locking it in. And that's why we get these crash and burn cycles that Richard, economist that agrees with me all the time, Richard Wolf speaks about. If we were to get, Egberto, I'm hoping the viewpoint that there is the oil crunch will cause the proliferation of renewable. I know that, I know that, I know that, um, Rudnan, but we shouldn't have to, 
We shouldn't have to lie about an oil crunch for people to say, I don't want to fry our atmosphere. When education of the younger generation can actually show people, my God, if we keep burning this crap, we're all going to die. And it's not, our, it's not that we're all going to die. We're all going to live a horrendous life of hurricanes, of heat and cold and all these other issues. But we're back onto the price of gasoline. So we have the United Airlines and all these guys buying contracts because they're running scared for no reason. Then we have the political system. Do you really think that we don't have a problem buying oil from Russia, a fascist, communist state? Well, now it's not communist anymore, but it's a fascist. It's worse than communist, actually, because it's a one-man dictator. At least communist is a semblance of people having a voice. Socialist, democratic socialism is where everybody has a voice. But do you think, I want you to answer these questions. Why is it okay that we have no problem buying oil from Saudi Arabia, a fascist state, a state where women don't have rights, but are flooded in oil? We buy from Russia. When I say we, I'm talking about the Western world. You buy from Russia. These people have the same issues as far as human rights, etc. Now, Venezuela. Venezuela is swimming on top of oil. Venezuela has more oil than all of us. I think, you know, I may be ex ex exaggerating, about, but I think it has more oil than the United States as well. Look it up. Hey, uh, Michael Rodney, look up if Venezuela has more oil than the current reserves in America. I think it does. But whatever the case is, Venezuela is one of the countries with the most oil bar none. Okay? But we are shut down from Venezuela, not because Venezuela doesn't like its people. Think about this. Not because Venezuela doesn't like its people. Because if that were the case, we wouldn't be buying oil from Saudi Arabia. We wouldn't be buying oil from Russia. We wouldn't be buying oil from all these countries where they treat their people badly, where people don't have democracy or etc. It is a con job. It is a con job to keep oil off the market. I mean, look, those of us who are progressives kind of like the coercion, right? Because you keep the price of oil high, suddenly it makes sense. Okay, the proven reserves in Venezuela is, are recognized as the largest in the world, totaling 300 billion. I thought I read that, uh, but I wanted to be sure. You know, you come here to get information. Bruce says, we didn't buy raw materials on the spot market unless they were cheaper. Otherwise, we made long-term contracts, hot in panic, but as a pattern of a business process, a failed business process. Okay, so, so there, there we go now with the oil, okay? We have all these places with billions of bar barrels of oil. So why don't we tap them? We don't tap them for this reason. And you're not going to read this, right? I am from this part of the world, and I understand the concepts, right? In Central America and all these places, we have the strong men. And, it's, it's, and the strong men are usually financed then by the big shots in the, in the country. So in Panama, we have a class of people known as the Rabiblancos. That's the Tagaropoulos and a lot of the other big shots in Panama. They run all the real big industries in the country. 
under the auspices of having good relations with the United States of America. And when these tin pot dictators like Manuel Noriega misbehave bad enough, they find a way for the United States to come in and invade and claim that they, these countries are anti-democratic and then they take their natural resources. And people say, Egberto, I didn't read that. That's not true. I know you're not going to read that. You can't read that because that's not how it is written. The same goes with Venezuela. Do you think Maduro, and before Maduro, Chavez, just came into existence? Before Chavez, we had guys like uh, uh, Andres Perez and all these, these guys. Andres Perez was, uh, he was a leftist, right? But not left enough. He still had the plutocracy in Venezuela ripping the country off. And, and, and I think he even went to jail himself for being a part of the mess. But what I'm trying to tell all of you is, Oh my God, it's five o'clock. I knew this was going to go long. Give me one more minute and uh, to just wrap this up. What I'm trying to tell you is there is an abundance of oil ready to be tapped right now. And if that were the issue for having high gas prices, we would have tapped them. This is a fraud on the American people. And it's hard to explain to America because you have from CNBC to the New York Times to all of these guys buying into this concept of a shortage, buying into this concept of a supply disruption. All of this, we are, we are, we are, we are bombarded by all the reputable sources telling you that stuff. And here is little Egberto Willis telling you we're swimming in oil if we really want it. I don't want us burning it. But if that is the reason for high gas prices as opposed to externalities that allow us to start using gas to pay its prices, it would be great. But that's not it. We have to do something about this. It is important that we don't just take my word for it. Just read, and you have to read between the lines, Michael Rudnan just pulled up the material that shows you that Venezuela has more reserves than any other country on the planet right now. The discoverable reserves. And we know that Venezuela for a long time has been pumping oil. In fact, Citgo in the United States is who, uh, who processed their oil, etc. But because of a political problem, because uh, uh, Chavez said, Este petróleo es para el pueblo. Este petróleo, el dueño de este petróleo es el pueblo. The owner of this oil are the people, not the corporations that are coming to drill it and give us pennies on the dollar. Not so. This oil belongs to the people. And what did he get for that? You know, I mean, this guy's no saint. Maduro is a, is a, is a poor example of Chavez. These are not saints, and these are all powerful. These are all people that you re reach to that point in your life, you want to, you know, you have a certain thing on your back. But don't dare believe that the price of oil is justified. I'm going to tell you what it would be justified right now. The nationalization of the oil, in, of the energy industry. Because think about this. You watch the news today, and I'm, I'm going over one more minute. You watch the news today, they said, oh my God, oil prices are high. What does oil high oil prices mean? Fertilizers are going to go up in price, which means the animal feed is going to go up in price, which means eggs are going to go up in price, all based on oil. That's a farce. 
nationalize the, the oil industry, stabilize the price of oil, and let everything else be market-based, eggs, the fruits, all of that market-based. We take away the volatile part of the economy that screw people. And you know what I'm going to tell you better? Having inflation destroys small businesses. Because you know what? When it comes to fighting for oil, United Airlines can get the oil and they can buy their contracts. But that little truck company, he can't buy contracts. He's going to pay whatever the spot market says he's going to pay. So therefore, we get back into the same thing that happened during the pandemic. The little man dies and the big dude goes up. Nationalize the energy market. Nationalize the healthcare market. And let free enterprise reign towards everything else. You want to see a stable economy. You want to see freedom. You want to see democracy. You want to see honesty. For those parts of our economy that's been screwing and keeping people hostage, let we the people control it. Watch how quickly the people who really have the intellect to move forward, all of you that are listening to me, you have an idea for business that you won't do because you can't afford healthcare. You have an idea for some other company you want to form. You can't afford healthcare or you can't afford the other costs because the big guys run everything. Nationalize the basics and let us have a true free enterprise system in a true democracy, and you see how quickly we move forward. Folks, please support us at politicsdoneright.com slash support, politicsdoneright.com slash support. And uh, let's keep talking about these issues. And also, I'd like you to ask questions about this issue. I'll have, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get Richard Wolf, uh, Dr. Richard Wolf on again, because this is the perfect time for, for, for me to bring these subjects up with him that, you know, again, he agrees with uh, because it's all corroboratable. You can all corroborate what I'm saying here. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you guys know how I end this, baby. I am what? Oh. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.